Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. All right, we are back again, or I should say I am back again on the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. And uh, I am going to finalize uh, my series on worship. I, I do have more material, but I want to get on to some other things. And so today might be a little bit of a marathon. I'm not sure exactly how this is going to roll out. But I want to share what I think are the remaining key principles that we need to understand and recognize as local churches who strive to practice a New Testament theology. And I want to encourage you to maybe take some of these things and go study them out on your own and see how you can put them into practice in your local church. So today we're looking at the individual in corporate worship, the individual in corporate worship. And I would have to say in my study and research on worship in the church that one of the saddest occurrences in the life of the local church over the past 40 to 50 years, was the, the determination that individuals do not need to worship God at the church. Now, we can worship God on the golf course. We can worship God on the lake. We can worship God from our tree stand. We can worship God doing all kinds of events. And I just picked a bunch that typically are male-related because uh, I'm a male. And women, you can have your own areas where you worship God. I don't pretend to know what all of those are. But the greater point is this. Individuals have determined that the local church is not necessary for their spiritual well-being and their relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's a very, very distressing point to bring out. But we have to confront it. It's a true point. It's something that is a reality in the society in which we live. Now let's talk about why this shift happened. We can look at several key factors that would describe why this shift happened. And and it's not just one thing, but I think it's a series of things that have caused this shift away from local church gatherings. Number one, you have a culture that esteems and celebrates individual autonomy. And when you celebrate individual autonomy, corporate or group events are less and less important. And there is a shift in thinking that has gone on in our culture that is a result of a postmodern perspective on life, that the individual's needs are the highest end and the highest goal in life. And Putting the individual ahead of the collective is really the the idol, if you will, of the postmodern movement. That what I think is so important because it's all about me. And so our culture has celebrated and esteemed this individual autonomy. And that celebration by the culture has infiltrated the way that Christians think. This particular perspective was not found in the New Testament. 
In fact, uh, the New Testament is quite contrary to this. There are at least 52 one another's in the New Testament. And, and what I mean by the one another's are commands to do something or to be involved with one another as believers in Christ. So that would be the first factor, the cultural factor. A second factor that has uh, contributed to the shift is an increase in the popularity and availability of television, radio, and internet ministries. In fact, you're listening to this podcast right now, probably on your phone or your computer, and this is another ministry. You can get 30 to 40 minutes of what I believe is biblical, solid teaching with great application uh, on your way to work, on your way to school, on your while you're mowing your lawn or, or wherever. And so if you're getting that kind of teaching from a podcast or from a another radio or internet ministry, why do I need to go to church? I mean, this guy on the radio is better than my pastor, so why should I do that? I'm not talking about me in general, but let's say you were listening to somebody who's really well-respected and well-known, like a, like a John Piper or a John MacArthur or, um, um, you know, Charles Stanley, somebody like that. Yeah, this guy's so much better than my pastor. Why should I? Eh, I don't even need the local church. So that's a factor, the increase in the popularity of television, internet, and radio ministries. A third factor, which is this, a poor job by local churches in emphasizing the centrality and primacy of the local church as, as God's only plan during the present dispensation. Let me say that again. Local churches have done a poor job of emphasizing their centrality and their primacy as God's only plan during the present dispensation. And we talk about this uh, in our pastoral meetings uh, with our church in this context, okay? So there is the local church, which is what God established to carry out all the ministries of the present age. And then there are what we call parachurch organizations, and that comes from a Greek word, para, meaning beside or alongside of. And a parachurch organization is alongside the local church. It's not the local church, but it's alongside the local church. And Jesus, when he established the foundation and the primacy of the local church, In Matthew chapter 16, let me read it to you. Jesus said to him, that is Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say also that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. All right, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So here we have Jesus' declarative, definitive statement that Peter would be the first, really, preacher and the first pastor, if you will, of the local church. And indeed, it was Peter who 
of the 12 disciples got up on the day of Pentecost and preached to the Jews on that very day, and 3,000 were saved. Now, I think that Peter and the other apostles functioned equally as elders, but Peter was their spokesperson in a sense. He was the public face of the apostles and could have been considered in some sense the shepherd, the original shepherd of that first church, although by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, about 12 to 13 years later, we find that James, the brother of Jesus, was really acting as the pastor shepherd of the church in Jerusalem. But the greater point to what Jesus is saying is, we're no longer going to have the nation of Israel and the Old Testament ceremonial laws. We're going to have something different, and it is my church. It is Jesus's church. So the emphasis of our Lord and Savior is that church, church is where his followers gather. Church is where his followers learn about him. Church is where his followers practice the truth. And church is where his followers are able to fulfill and perform all the commandments that have been given to them. And so when local churches abscond or give away their responsibilities, when they allow other ministries that are not the local church to come in and take men and money and ministry opportunities, it makes the local church passive and weak and seem very insignificant in the life of the believer. And I don't want to criticize parachurch ministries because I think that they are well-meaning and well-intentioned. I think that they do good work. But really, local churches should be the ones reaching out on college campuses. Local churches should be the ones passing out Bibles at the high school or the hospital or the hotel rooms. Local churches should be the ones who are managing food banks or trying to care for the poor and needy of the community. Local churches should be doing all of these things, but Americans, because of our incredible prosperity, have found it to be much easier as a church, this is just as a church, to give money to somebody else to do those things that you would rather not do. And that is to our shame. So these three factors, and I think I would include the rise of social media, which probably is like a subset of the cultural factor, the rise of social media, which celebrates individualism and promotes anti-generationalism. And what I mean by anti-generationalism is you just associate with your peer group and you don't learn from other generations who have gone before you. That's anti-generationalism. So the fact that the culture celebrates and esteems individual autonomy, the access to good teaching on the television, the radio, and the internet, and the local church's lack of solid teaching regarding her place in God's plan, along with the rise of social media, which has made it real easy to be an individual, these have all contributed to a decline in worship in the local church. And worship has really declined to the point where you know, some treat it as if it is entertainment, 
And in order to get people to the local church, pastors, teachers, leaders of local churches have decided that we need to have the church service imitate the world. And I think that's a real problem when the church service imitates the world. Church is not a place where you go to be entertained. It's not a place where you go to get an a la carte feast. You pick what you want and leave the rest. No, church is where you go to contribute, to give out of the overflow of your heart, out of the overflow of your personal studies, out of the overflow of gratitude and thankfulness that you have for what Christ did for you. You go to church to give all these things back to God. He is our primary focus. He should receive the glory. He should have the attention. And then, secondarily, when you do those things, like giving glory and thanksgiving and praise and honor to God the Father, you build up, that's the word edify, you build up your fellow believers so that everybody walks away encouraged by what they gave at the church service. Now, you may come in having had a great week. Your week may have been fantastic. Maybe you're a salesman and you closed two jobs this week and you know that, man, this really is a great provision for my family. Well, there may be somebody else in your local church who comes in, didn't have such a great week. Maybe, let's just make an extreme contrast, maybe he got fired from his job. Or maybe he got sick and wasn't able to work and lost a few days worth of income. You're coming to church rejoicing. He's coming to church broken and wondering, what? how is God going to use this in my life? And I tell you what, if the guy who is rejoicing and the guy who is broken come to church and they put their focus on God the Father and on saying, Lord, you ordained these purposes in my life. Let me celebrate despite the hardships. Let me celebrate in the great times and in the, in the joyous occasions. When both men come to church and they raise their collective eyes to Jesus, and they sing songs that praise and glorify Jesus, and they pray prayers, and they hear the scriptures being read, and they sit under the teaching of the Word of God, both men will be lifted up in their hearts and encouraged despite their circumstances. All right, so the benefit of corporate worship is that it glorifies God first, but it builds up and encourages believers second. And that's a key reality that we need because going through this world, living in a world that is under the curse of sin, oftentimes dealing with sin issues in your home and family life, trying to overcome those, and then perhaps working in the secular world, that can be very discouraging and very disheartening to an individual. And so church serves as a place where you can go to basically have a reset you can refocus. You can become encouraged. You give something. You make a sacrifice, an offering of praise, but you get much more than you give. And it is only the mystery of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, that causes that to be true for us in our lives. Corporate worship has always been a part of God's plan. So let me take a moment to define this for you. Corporate worship is a designated time when God's people gather together as a unified group 
to worship him according to the standards and the practices that he has revealed in Scripture at any particular given time. Let me say that again. Corporate worship is a designated time when God's people gather together as a unified group to worship him according to the standards and practices that he has revealed in Scripture. Now, why doesn't the church perform animal sacrifices? Because that standard and that practice is not required for the church. It was required for the nation of Israel. So when Israel gathered as a corporate body to worship, animal sacrifice was part of that ritual, part of that standard that God had designed. And it's easy to see that throughout the biblical history, starting in Genesis chapter 3, God's standards for what he has expected his people to do in corporate worship have changed according to time. They've changed according to the governing authorities and the situation, and they have changed uh, for, for other various reasons, perhaps to point out spiritual significances. Uh, in, in other words, in the Old Testament, a lot of the sacrifices pointed forwards to Christ, but in the church age, many of the things that we do point back to Christ or to Christ as his current spot as the ruler or the mediator between God and man ruling at God's right hand. So corporate worship is always defined and always characterized by how well that group of people is following and obeying the standards and practices set forth by God. Now, one of the challenges, and this was a challenge for Israel, one of the challenges that we face as the church is we can read the New Testament, we can see the things that we're supposed to do. We see the good works that are necessary. Um, when I say good works, what I'm talking about are the standards and practices that God has established. And it can be easy to do them mindlessly. All right, just have them as a repetition. This was one of the big criticisms that was levied against the nation of Israel by God in the prophets, uh, both the major prophets and the minor prophets, that they were just going through the motions. That would be the correct idiom for our American culture. The Israelites were just going through the motions. And it's easy for the church to just go through the, emotion, the motions as well. I'm sure you've probably had Sundays where, you know, it was hard to get to church. And, and uh, for whatever reason, maybe there was an illness, maybe it was a rough week, um, there could be a number of reasons, but you were just going through the motions. So how do, you, how do you not go through the motions? How do you work hard at observing the standards and practices that God has established without it becoming rote okay, or meaningless? I think that starts at home with your attitude. The individual in corporate worship, the individual has to have an attitude of, I will worship God and give him glory no matter what is going on in my life. And I think the best example of this comes from the book of Job, in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, when God allowed Satan to test Job, and so Job's family, all of his children were killed, all of his possessions were destroyed, and he got up 
from that moment of devastation. And he said, you know what? God has given and God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is worship, despite feeling horrible. And let's take that to the church age. If we feel bad, if we have a hard week, how do we then approach the worship of God? I think it's incumbent upon us. In fact, I'm, I strongly believe that is an incumbent upon every individual to purposefully direct their mind and their thinking and their heart to give God the glory despite the adversity that is happening in life. And to say this, God, you have done this. It's devastating to my heart. I'm broken on the inside, but God, you knew about this. You planned it. You brought these circumstances about, and the purpose that you did this was for my sanctification so that I can become more like Christ. God, help me. Help me to use this adversity to become more like Christ. Help me to use this difficulty to become more like Christ. And as I go to church, Lord, I am hurting on the inside. Help me to turn my focus to you and to be encouraged and to be lifted up by the activities of the saints as we worship you together. Well, that's how the individual ought to approach corporate worship. And I tell you, it takes some real discipline and self-control to make your mind think that way when there are adversities and difficult circumstances taking place in your life. One of the reasons that I think the couple of lessons that we did on the heart-mind connection is so important is that it helps you to see how interconnected all of your internal emotions and thoughts are. And when you feel bad, it's easy to think bad. But sometimes if you're feeling bad, but you can think positive, it will help change your feelings. And I'm not saying that as some kind of like psychological trick to help lift you up when you have a bad day. What I'm saying is, if you read the pattern of Scripture, if you, for example, especially in the Psalms, if you read the pattern of Scripture, you'll find that often the psalmist is down in the dumps over some circumstance that's happening, over some adversity in his life, and he lifts up his voice to Yahweh. says, Yahweh, rescue me. Rescue me. And how does, how does he receive rescue from Yahweh? Does he receive an immediate deliverance from the adverse circumstances? No. No, but internally, he is rescued. Internally, he is made well because he starts to think about God's greatness. He starts to think about God's steadfast, never-ending love. He begins to think about God's mercy and God's love and God's justice and God's righteousness. And as he dwells on the attributes of God and on the greatness of God, he himself is lifted up because he realizes this is a great God and this God cares for me. That's how we must approach, approach worship as individuals. That's how we must 
transform our thinking and be disciplined and diligent to take control of our thought life so that we don't attribute wrongdoing to God, but rather we attribute the right glory, the right praise, the right attributes to God. And as we meditate on the greatness of our God, it lifts us up and helps us to grow and causes us to reevaluate our circumstances. So how do individuals contribute to corporate worship? If every individual who gathers at your church would have that attitude of what can I give to God despite the adversity in my life or in spite of the great joyous and triumphs that I'm having, what can I give to God? If we would come at God like that, if we would come to worship God like that, the church would be greatly encouraged. The singing would be powerful. The attention to scripture reading and to prayer and to the sermon and the preaching of the word would be complete and full. The benefit of the fellowship would be even greater than it already is because we would be sharing in life's joys and life's disappointments together. And as we share in those things together, it would cause our hearts to trust our God more. And as Christ is magnified in our hearts, as Christ grows, as his fame grows in our hearts, our actions will reflect our trust in Christ. Perhaps that's why we have a hard time really practicing the truths that we say we believe, because we don't really, we don't really trust Christ. I mean, we trust him to save us from our sins, but do we trust him to care for everything else that happens to us in our day? We ought to. He says he does. He says that he knows the very hairs of our head. I don't even think about that. I just know that they're thinning out a little bit, you know. But God knows every single one, and he cares about us. So let's trust him. Now, let's turn our attention from how the individual is supposed to respond or the attitude that the individual has in corporate worship, to what should the church be doing? So what should individuals who go to church do? What is our responsibility according to the New Testament? Well, there are six things that believers in Christ must do when they go to church. Now, I will say that For example, the practice of the ordinance, that's one of them. I don't think that that has to be done every time the believers gather together, but I think, and my uh, understanding of the biblical record is that as the church in the New Testament, especially right after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter, you know, three, four, five, as they met together, they did all six of these things every single time they gathered together. Again, there is no prescription in the New Testament for how often to do them, but there is a prescription to do them. So here we go. Number one, this is the greatest priority, I believe, 
the greatest priority for the local church today is preaching the Word of God. And this is done in almost every church that I've been in on a weekly basis. You preach the Word of God. 2 Timothy 4.2 talks about preaching the Word in season and out of season. Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the apostles talk about the need for them to devote themselves to prayer, to the study of the Word, and to teaching. So preaching the Word is primary in the local church today. It is the way that God has ordained to communicate with us. Now, he's given us his word. We can read his revealed word. But God says in the local church that there are to be pastors and teachers who expound and explain his word, and they equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So my job as a pastor is to explain the word of God to the people in my church so that they will be equipped to do the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry for the saints looks different than the work of the ministry that I do as a pastor. They're doing many of the service aspects. They're taking care of visitations. They're taking care of all kinds of things. My job is to preach the word. Now, that doesn't mean I don't do those things because there are occasions when I do. But let's be honest. The pastor's role, the pastor-teacher's role is different than the saint's role in the exercise of ministry in the local church. But this preaching stands in the forefront of what the local church needs to do when they gather together. Secondly, we have singing of songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, oftentimes, the singing of songs, hymns, and spiritual songs gets elevated to the first priority. We want to care for the music ministry. We want to provide for the music ministry. We want to make sure the music ministry is really, really solid and well put together. And this is how the church, unfortunately, has imitated the world because in our culture, if you're going to have great music, it's a rock show. I don't mean a rock show like as in only rock music. What I should say is great music is often a theatrical performance. And so churches who want to have great music oftentimes have their music and it looks like a theatrical performance. So if the church wants to compete with the world, the church's music has to become a theatrical performance as well. Now, it's not wrong to do music excellently. It's not wrong to do things to the best of your ability. But what I think is a problem for the church is when the church desires to imitate the world to such an extent and degree that their musical production prohibits or discourages people from singing because the music isn't singable and the music is difficult and the music is too loud so you can't hear yourself sing. And there are, I I could go into a lot of things about the music, but we're not going to do that right now. I think I have another episode on that. I think I've spoken to that before. But singing of songs, hymns, and spiritual songs is the second thing that churches must do in their corporate gatherings. A third thing that churches must do is public prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, 
Paul talks about the importance of public prayer, praying for all men, especially the kings and the governing authorities, that they might come to know Jesus. And the purpose of them coming to know Christ as Savior is so that they will make God-honoring and God-fearing decisions resulting in the people, that would be Christians, living peaceably in society. That's something that we need to return to. We need to redouble our efforts at public prayer, especially praying for our leaders, that they would come to truly know Christ and that they would make decisions based on the Word of God. Number four, the fourth thing that we must do is to read Scripture publicly. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul exhorts Timothy to not neglect the public reading of Scripture. It is important to read Scripture so that everyone can hear. In the Old Testament, after the exile, after the Babylonian exile, the Israelites came back to their land and the prophet Ezra stood and read the law from sun up to sun to the to noonday. Okay, so that was about six hours worth of public reading of Scripture, and the people couldn't get enough of it because they hadn't heard the law in so many years. I think we sometimes um, just get tired of listening to a long passage of Scripture read, but we ought to be attentive to it. God says the public reading of Scripture is important. It causes all who hear to come under its authority. Number five, in the practices that the church must perform is the ordinances. The ordinances, and that would be communion and baptism. Now, the ordinance of communion points to uh, Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, In the Grace Brethren faith tradition, we believe in a threefold communion service that would incorporate the love feast, which points forward to the future meal that we will have in heaven called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We believe in the foot washing, which points out the need for daily sanctification and cleansing from sin. And the water of foot washing represents the word of God. And we also believe in using or taking the bread and the cup, which points to Christ's death on the cross, the act of justification, which paid the price for our sins. So we must practice the ordinance of communion, and we must practice the ordinance of baptism. And baptism for the church signifies the relationship of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and the believer's relationship to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Again, in the Brethren tradition, we believe that baptism elevates the Trinity and elevates Jesus Christ as a member of the Trinity, for it places him directly between the Father and the Spirit. And we believe that baptism is a command that all believers should be baptized and that they should be immersed three times to represent the Father's work in our hearts for salvation, the Son's work in our salvation, and the Spirit's work in our salvation. 
And there's more to it than that. There are a number of other layers of theology, but suffice it to say, baptism as an ordinance is something that ought to be practiced by the church. Finally, the last thing that ought to be practiced by the church is the giving of offerings. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 through 8, Paul encourages the saints to give, to aid one another, and to aid the Lord's work. And so we give to God, not a tithe. Okay, a tithe from the Old Testament was really a tax. It was a tax to care for the Levitical priests who were not able to uh, have fields and shepherd and shepherd sheep or goats or anything else, but they were to serve the Lord. And so in the Old Testament, a tithe was a tax that was designed to care for those who were working for the Lord, doing the Lord's work. In the New Testament, we have uh, what we call grace giving. All right, there's no percentage that you're supposed to give stated anywhere, but we are to give sacrificially according to the means that God has given to us and according to the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. That means that some people <clears throat> will give far more than the stated 10% of their income, and some people might give less than that. But your giving as a believer ought to be consistent with what God has placed in your heart to give. God knows whether you're giving an amount that is truly sacrificial in nature, truly generous in nature, or whether you are not. And so our giving in the church is to, yes, help pay for the pastor's salary so that he can focus on preaching the word and praying and counseling. It's also to help maintain the operations of the church building. But our giving is really a sacrifice back to God as an acknowledgement that what he has done for us is worth far more than we could ever give to him. Now, those are the six elements, the six practices that must occur in any local church. And I would say this, take time, maybe re-listen to this five-minute segment. Look up the scripture passages and ask yourself in your heart, do I really commit to practicing these things the way that God says, or do I just go through the motions? What do I really care about, and what would really benefit God's church. Well, I'm going to take this opportunity to say thank you for listening to this series on worship. I have much more material, probably should turn it into a book uh, someday, but these thoughts that I have explained to you over the last five or six episodes, I consider to be really the foundational principles of coming to a knowledge of truth and how to practice truth in worship in the local church. Thank you so much for your uh, feedback, for the encouragement that I've received from you. If you'd like more of the teaching or to find out more about our church, check us out on the web at www.gbchapel.org. May God bless you as you seek to put His truth into practice.